Do you understand the magnitude and significance of the effort that we are part of when we engage in taking the gospel to unbelievers? Find out much more on today's edition of Encounter God's Truth. We go back to Appalachian Bible College in Mount Hope, West Virginia, to hear the closing portion of a lesson on the necessity of God's Word in our series on biblical apologetics. I'm Wayne Shepherd, and our Bible teacher is Dr. John Whitcomb. We've been learning together from this classic series on apologetics, and today's program brings us to the finish. As fall approaches and so many head back to school, how appropriate it is that we focus on the energy that Scripture has to impact our hearts and minds with God's eternal truth. As Dr. Whitcomb demonstrates, it's more formidable than the greatest human intellect and even more powerful than seeing a miracle. Let's go back to Appalachian Bible College now and hear the conclusion of this message, The Necessity of God's Word. We begin by reviewing 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Who is sufficient for these things? Why, friends, we're we're in an infinite operation here that determines the eternal destiny of human beings in heaven or hell. Who's sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. Now, friends, we can just begin to realize the magnitude of God's plan here in form of a little chart. I hope this will be of some help to you, as it has to me from time to time. Uh, Over here we have symbolized the unbeliever with a darkened heart that doesn't have cleansing and purifying and forgiveness and regeneration by the Holy Spirit, the unbeliever. And notice that uh, he is surrounded by an impenetrable barrier to any outside finite pressure. It's called his sinful nature. And over here we've tried to uh, depict the believer whose heart has been cleansed by the Holy Spirit based on the merits of Jesus Christ. And uh, the believer may fall into the serious temptation of trying to win the unbeliever on a horizontal basis. Namely, just provide Christian evidences to penetrate that heart through logic and philosophy and history and science. And by the way, all these arguments that we've talked about through archaeology and history and logic, I mean, there there are hundreds and hundreds of evidences that show that the Bible has got to be supernatural in origin. But the amazing thing we discover is that no matter how powerful the arguments are in the realm of creation and prophecy and so forth, they cannot penetrate that heart. They cannot get through to that heart. Well, then what's the answer? What's the approach? God says you have... Now, this is very illogical from a human standpoint. God says you have to approach the unbeliever through the third heaven. You have to go this way. Through prayer, faith, and obedience in relation to God on the basis of Hebrews 4.12. The word of God, not my word or your word. The word of God is living, powerful, sharper, than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And neither is any creature that is not naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to... God knows that person infinitely. He knows what can reach that person. 
namely his precious word alone. That's one of the hardest lessons I've ever had to learn. Well, all the things, Lord, that I've learned about how we know the Bible is true, why can't I use those arguments, those evidences? Well, friends, uh, let's stop and think for a moment. As the word of God penetrates into that unbeliever, something of infinite power has reached his heart. Now, just think of the evidences Jesus provided. If you think our evidences can be effective, and they can be, and that's a whole subject of its own, uh, think of the evidences Jesus himself gave. Stupendous sign miracles, hundreds of them. In fact, someone has suggested that every sick, crippled, leprous person in Israel, by the time Jesus' ministry was finished, was healed. Thousands of people, it says it over and over, year after year, thousands of people, he healed them all, healed them all. And I say, well, Lord, I should think that the whole nation then would have turned to him. Why, on one occasion, friends, with a boy's lunch, he fed 5,000 men plus their families with food left over. And they said, they all agreed, this is John 6, uh, let's make him king. I mean, anyone who can feed everybody for nothing supernaturally is our candidate for king. Then he began telling them about himself and who he was and that they had to believe in him on the basis of his uh, substitutionary atoning death. And guess what happened at the end of chapter 6? They all left him. You say, that's absurd. Hadn't they seen sign miracles? Yes. Miracles like the like of which had never been seen before in the history of the world? Yes. And Jesus turned to the twelve and said, are you going to leave me too? And one of them finally spoke up, of course, Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Right. That's the difference. But even one of them was a doubter, Thomas, and another one was demon-possessed, namely Judas. That left ten out of thousands by the end of that day. And I say, Lord... That helps me to understand what the miracles were for. Why, Jesus, friends, said, An evil, adulterous nation demands signs, and no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Namely, as he was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, his bodily resurrection is his final proof to the whole human race of who he is. The sign miracles, may I say it this way, were almost totally ineffective and worthless to convert anybody ever in Israel. That wasn't their function. It was simply to do what? To attract attention to himself as the God-appointed Messiah and King of Israel so that they could then hear his message and then their response to the message would determine their eternal destiny. This is an awesome thing to think about. Now, I almost hate to read this chapter. I, with fear and trembling, I ask you to turn to Luke 16. This is absolutely awesome. The rich man in Hades. Luke 16, beginning with verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. 
And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Would you kindly agree with me? He was in desperate condition. He had nothing of this world's goods. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. That means the place of blessing, the place of the faithful in what at that time was called paradise, the upper Sheol Hades, where believers went when they died. And the rich man also died and was buried, and in hell, or Hades, the lower Sheol Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom, in close fellowship with him. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. That is the situation now of every unbeliever who's ever died. I just, I'm staggered by this. And Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, Lazarus can't get to you, sorry. Neither can they pass to us that they that would come from thence. And other, you can't come here either. And then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that rich man in Hades and torment said to Abraham, Father, that thou would ascend into my brother's house. I have a plan. I want you to reach my living brothers by sign miracles. Now, this would impress some people today. Because we are harassed in every direction by people who are committed to sign miracle ministries. To change the hearts of people by spectacular things that they can see. Now watch the response of God through Abraham. I have five brethren that he may testify to them, lest they also come into this place of torment. In other words, would you please send Lazarus, the beggar, back to the realm of the living? Because my five brothers often came to my mansion and saw this beggar by the door, and they'd recognize him when they see him. Please send him back to the realm of the living. And I mean, think of this as an evangelistic program. He could go from house to house knock on the doors of my brothers and say, I am back from the dead. I saw your dead brother in Hades in torment. Do you think that would get their attention? How do you like that for a sign miracle ministry? Look at God's response through Abraham. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the Bible. They have the Old Testament scripture. They have the infallible and errant self-authenticating word of God. In other words, that's what they need is the Bible. The truth, inscripturated by the Holy Spirit. But he said, now this is why he was where he was. Listen to how he despises God's word. Do you catch this? He said, nay, Father Abraham. In other words, who cares about the Bible? Old wives' fables, stories for children maybe, but... Not for my brothers. You don't understand, sir. They're intellectuals. They're scientists. They don't accept stories supposedly from God. They want to see something. 
that's empirical, tangible, self-evident, and thus convincing. Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. That's what they need, a sign miracle. Hmm. And here's how it ends, folks. And he said unto him, Abraham said to the rich man, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Really? Well, that's what happened when Jesus arose from the dead. The whole story of the book of Acts is that in spite of the fact that Jesus Christ fulfilled his promise, he said, you destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it again. And he did and rose from the dead. And the apostles preached the resurrection of Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees hated the message and threatened and tormented God's servants for mentioning resurrection, even of Jesus. Oh, yes, friends. Even if one rises from the dead, they will not repent you know what Jesus did for his friend Lazarus one day in Bethany? He raised him from the dead. Lazarus, come forth! I'm very impressed by what happened, aren't you? Immediately, the corpse stood at the entrance of the tomb. And he said, loose him and let him go. He, he's fine. He's alive. Probably felt better than he had in his previous life. He didn't have to be dragged out half dead for recuperation. Don't you think all the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees would have just swamped the whole... I mean, they said, that settles it. We believe. Read what happened next. The enemies of Jesus got together and made a decision. Just for that, we're going to kill Lazarus and Jesus. Hmm. That doesn't sound intelligent. Well, that's the problem. Because the mind of man which is an aspect of the soul, heart, spirit of man in his sinfulness, his darkness, cannot function intelligently. Only the Spirit of God can bring us reason to see God's realities as they really are. And I say, well, Lord, I, I just didn't know it was this bad. I just, I just desperately need your help then to accomplish what is otherwise impossible. Uh, help me to preach the word faithfully, clearly, completely, without compromise, graciously, patiently, in season, out of season, love people, whether they receive me, accept me, appreciate me or not, because the word of God has infinite power. I don't. He has it. He alone has it. Now, friends, there is a way in which Christian evidences can be used. I just uh, want to be very careful here not to disparage the things that God has given us in the way of evidences. Let's uh, take a look. The low value of Christian evidences, among other methods, by this shall all men... Unsaved men who lack spiritual discernment to understand scripture. By this, Jesus said, shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. John thirteen thirty five. So the ultimate models for mutual Christian love in a godless world must be the Christian home and the local church. Now think carefully of that statement, Jesus. That's the greatest of Christian evidences. When you go forth to a mission field, whether it's New Zealand or wherever. 
something you can do under God is undeniable and irresistible. And here it is. Demonstrate to the people to whom God sends you that you know what Christian love is. In your relationship, uh, husband and wife and parents and children and children to parents. And hopefully other Christians in a little tiny uh, microcosm of the Holy Spirit called a local church that God will plant there. And the godless surrounding population sooner or later will have to see something they have never seen before and can't explain and can't duplicate. Christian love. Why, there are all kinds of evidences, friends, that are helpful, like maybe, you know, uh, medical missions, helping people physically. That'll get their attention. Uh, Maybe hospitality. Uh, Maybe uh, English language courses in China or wherever. People almost do anything to learn English, and you you get them there, and you demonstrate, you know, interest in them personally, and you can talk about the things that uh, they're interested in and show friendship. And that's, and, but you see, Jesus said the greatest evidence we have that will really get people's attention is Christian love. One for another in the home and in a local church that God will plant here and there around the world. You see, friends, Jesus never said miracles will do the trick. He said to the apostles, you remember in John 14, uh, the miracles that I've done, you'll do also. And they did. They raised the dead. I mean, Peter and Paul, I mean, amazing sign miracles they did in the early church, book of Acts. But do you know what else he said, friends? Greater works than these shall you do because I go to my father. And what are the greater works? Preaching the gospel, which when believed brings, brings eternal life instantly. But the sign miracles Jesus performed never saved anybody. Did you know that? They were spectacular. They were undeniable. But every person Jesus healed got sick again anyway and died. Every one of them. He didn't permanently solve anybody's problem physically. He fed 5,000. The next day they were all hungry again. Didn't solve their hunger problem. But Jesus said, because I'm going to my father in heaven and send the Holy Spirit and create the church and grant unto you the scriptures, you will have the capacity under God to mastermind this book and make it known to people and you'll see greater work. I mean, Peter the Apostle, folks, preached one sermon and 3,000 men were saved in one day and saved forever. Vastly greater miracle Then healing the sick and walking on water, which Peter also did. Don't try that, by the way, unless Jesus does to you what he did to him, namely says, come. Don't try that. I have been fascinated, obsessed, I guess is the word, with the mentality today that you have to have intellectual brilliance and you have to have spectacular miracles to attract anybody and to have any credibility as a member, uh, as a Uh, as a representative of God. I've done a little booklet, in fact, that's out there and maybe have helped you. Does God want Christians to perform miracles today? No. In fact, you know what would happen? It'd be a regression. It'd be a step, giant step backwards because we'd be going back to the lower foundation of the church in the apostolic era before the superstructure was built on the completed scripture. In those days, it was... 
a unique way for God to give the apostles opportunity to attract attention. But now, friends, we have something they didn't have. The completed Bible. God says, you master this book. And sooner or later, one way or another, you follow my guidelines and my instruction. And you mastermind the basics of evangelism and church planning and missions and witness. And you will have infinite power from above through this book that pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And I say, Lord, I just I desperately need your help. This book, friend, is so powerful that even when you preach it without love, it'll change people forever. Did you know that? Paul tells us in Philippians 1, there are other people here in Rome that are offended by my being here and they don't like me and they don't appreciate me. But uh, they are preaching the truth and I will rejoice in it and I will continue to rejoice. Because even without love, which is often the way we preach, like on a radio station, you never even see the people. Or hand out a tract and you see the people disappear, you never see them again. Even under those situations, the word of God has infinite power. Let me tell you a man who preached the word without love. Jonah. He hated every minute of his ministry. He said, God, why don't you destroy these people? That wasn't a loving approach to missions. <laughs> but you know what he did? He preached the word. And the whole city repented. And Jesus said, it wasn't fakey either. He said, Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah and will rise up in the last generation and condemn this generation. I mean, he must have preached more than just judgment. He must have said something about God, it's my opinion. The whole city repented, even though he hated every one of them in Nineveh. But that's why God says, preach the truth, as we were reminded this morning. Preach the truth in love, and you'll have even more effect. Yes, but whatever you do, folks, hold on. Preach the truth. <laughs> that's the point. That's the power, the truth. And hopefully it's done in love and graciously and prayerfully and patiently. But whatever you do and whatever your motive and whatever the circumstances, preach the word. And I say, thank you, Lord. That settles it. I think I'll be a Bible-believing Christian and a Bible-believing teacher. And I want to honor Jesus Christ and the blessed Holy Spirit who presented this book to us because that's an irresistible force. Even in a world dominated by what? Satan! Millions of demons, billions of depraved people, and even my sin nature. God says, watch me. I have a special weapon, an instrument I'm putting into your hand and your mind and heart. Watch what I can do, almost in spite of you, for my glory, through my word. Father in heaven, I just stand amazed at how you operate. Everything sooner or later will be for your glory or it will disappear. Uh, help me to examine there for my own ministry. The church could be raptured to heaven and I and all of us will be confronted by the Lord Jesus with eyes like a flame of fire searching us, examining us to see whether we really have done the work of God in a godly way in obedience, in faithfulness, for His glory. 
Help me to be ready at any moment to give an account to you, dear Father, because that's why you sent me, not to gain glory for myself or any of us as teachers and proclaimers of the truth, but to glorify the Savior, apart from whom we're lost forever, and the blessed Holy Spirit who gave us this precious book. May ABC, Father, stand brightly in a darkening world as a true reflector of the light of Jesus Christ. Until he comes, I pray in his glorious name, for his sake, amen. If God's word has made an impact on you today, we'd love to hear about it. Just leave us a comment at facebook.com slash Ministries, where there's always something to encourage you. You can also find lots more on the subject of apologetics at sermonaudio.com slash Whitcomb. Find that page from our website, whitcombministries.org. You're listening to Encounter God's Truth from Whitcomb Ministries, and we're grateful for the opportunity to emphasize week after week that God's Word is true from the beginning to the end, offering timeless truths for changing times. I'd like to close with a reading from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. For everyone here at Encounter God's Truth, I'm Wayne Shepherd, praying for the Lord to fill this week ahead with much meaning and many blessings. Thanks for listening.